It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, it's Anna. A quick announcement. If you live in New York City or you can be there on the afternoon of Saturday, December 9th, Join us for a live event celebrating the end of this era of death, sex, and money at WNYC. We're doing a live show called Four Interviews and a Funeral, with special guests, music, and a communal celebration of endings. It's at 12.30 p.m. at a cabaret on the Lower East Side called Caveat, which is appropriate because the caveat for this event is that we don't know yet what is happening next for the show, me or the team, but we do know something special is coming to an end. Ticket information is at the link in our show notes, or you can visit caveat.nyc events. Please come out if you can. I also want to give you a heads up about this episode. It's about two married people, one of whom lives with a serious mental illness, and how they deal with that in their family. As we talk, there is conversation about thoughts of suicide, so please take care while listening. Mommy has an illness of the mind because it's easier than mental illness. So I say mommy has an illness of the mind and sometimes mommy has to go to the hospital to get better. This is Death, Sex, and Money. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sale. It had been eight and a half years since Julia Lukacs had a manic episode. In that time, she had a baby, changed jobs, and her husband Mark had written a memoir about their experience together called My Lovely Wife in the Psych Ward. Danger seemed behind them. And we kind of had this quasi-pseudoscience theory that maybe by sharing our story with the world, that was becoming this, like, protective barrier for us, that we had, like, reclaimed the narrative and were figuring it out and standing side by side, and this was, like, protecting us and all this other stuff. And then it's like, well, I guess that theory is not real <laughs> because, <laughs> um, because it happened again. I first interviewed Mark and Julia on the show back in 2015. We're going to play some of that original conversation and then hear more from my recent conversation with them, which was recorded in the beginning of fall of this year. Julia had just spent the whole summer recovering from a psychotic episode, her fourth ever. Julia described her first psychotic episode in our original interview. When that happened, she was 27 and had just started working at a new place. I was only a week or two into this new job and I would look at uh, an email I would receive, and I'm very efficient. I usually, you know, write back, respond. I'm doing a million different things. And and for some reason, this time around, I would just look at the email and just stare at the email and reread my response 10 times and call Mark and read him my response before hitting send. I would just blank stare at the wall, and people, I remember, looking at me like, what's going on? 
And and Mark, when did you notice that this wasn't just stress of starting a new job? I, I mean, within the first week, it was clear that the, the stuff she was complaining about was sort of bigger than just, oh, this is a busy job, you know, where I was like, maybe this isn't actually what we thought it was going to be. I, I recognize looking back, like I was pretty impatient and could get pretty easily frustrated. Like, what's going on? Why are you so freaked out? Stop calling me. I'm at work. I got to do my job too. Julia went to a doctor and was prescribed an antidepressant, but she didn't get better. What made it real was when I was given the pills and um, I was on Skype with my mom and I told her, I was like, Mom, I think I'm going to just take all these pills and I think I'm going to commit suicide. Hmm. Yeah, and that was just within like a month. It, it It just spiraled so quickly. Julia was eventually diagnosed with bipolar disorder. People with it experience extreme emotional highs and extreme lows. And in Julia's case, even the highs could get really dark. That's one of the big distinctions they've made, where, like, usually mania is super fun and you're up late and partying, but your mania is just, like, really scary and psychotic. Mm -hmm. The only thing she could talk about was the devil and that she basically needed to protect the world because the devil was inside her. And so... She didn't specifically say, like, I am going to kill myself, but it was basically, like, her being alive was keeping the devil alive. And then what do they, what do they tell you at the ER? I, I still was under this impression that a doctor was going to walk in the doors and say, okay, here's exactly what's going on, and here's this pill. And when, as soon as she takes it, it's like taking a Tylenol for a headache. She'll be totally fine within an hour, no problem. And that was, like, such a naive expectation But it's what we thought. And that is, like, not at all what happened. Instead, the doctor came in and said, we have no idea what's going on. She's clearly dangerous. So we can't keep her here in the ER. We're going to take her to the psychiatric facility where she's going to stay for a minimum of 72 hours because that's the law mandates. And then after that, they'll reevaluate if she needs to stay for longer. At what point did, did you hear the words psychosis or psychotic break? I think I remember it most clearly when I was put <laughs> next to the nurse station because I was completely psychotic. And that's what I remember the nurse saying. It's like, this girl is completely psychotic and she needs to stay like right here next to us, basically. That's, that's kind of like the room where the the craziest of crazies like stays because they just didn't trust me anywhere else in the ward. So, yeah, I think it was very much early on. And it wasn't said to you, it was said about you. It was about me. Yeah, it was I was right there in the room looking over like completely lost and confused and they were like that psychotic girl needs to stay right there. She did stay there for 23 days. Mark was at home, frantically making phone calls to doctors, to the insurance company, to his job, trying to manage as best he could until visiting hours from 7 to 8.30 each night. And so it was literally like spent all day on the phone and then gear yourself up to go visit her, not knowing what the hell is going to happen when (laughs) I get there. You know, like any range of... Julia being super affectionate or Julia like screaming at me to not come in her door or Julia just ignoring me. I mean, like it was completely unpredictable. 
I'd have to prepare things to talk about because Julia didn't necessarily, all she'd want to talk about is like the angels and demons that were in the world. And I'm like, well, well, the weather was nice today. Let's talk about who I talked to my brother and just trying to like keep her in this reality somehow. Julia, I heard you giggle a little bit when Mark said the visiting (laughs) hours and not knowing what to expect. Yeah. It's just, I just look back at all the stuff I I said during those visiting hours and like what I believed and I still remember it all so vividly, but I'm not in that state of mind anymore. So I could see how for him it was like so scary. But for me, it was reality. Like I believe the whole, (laughs) all the nurses were actors and they all like set up this huge scheme against me. And this was going to be like how I would like get to heaven is to figure this all out. It was all a game. And I would tell Mark, you know, like, ha, I get it now. This nurse is playing this person. And he was just like, you know, the center of the plot. Because that's what I believed. I believed that he was out to get me. And he was one of the bad guys. After Julia got out of the hospital, she was enrolled in an outpatient rehab program where she had a support group, art therapy, yoga. Her husband, Mark, took a three-year leave from work to help with the transition. But it ended up being nine months before she was feeling better. Julia remembers it as the hardest time of her life. I was just so suicidal, and I was like, why would God do this to me? Like, why would he abandon me? And why would he get me to go through all of this. Basically, I believed I was in hell. So why would why would I have to go through hell in this lifetime? I've always been a good person. Like, he doesn't love me. And how did you feel about Mark during that nine-month period? Um, he was a lot of times the pill Nazi. <laughs> That's the way I called him for a little bit. Basically, he was like, take your pills, take your pills, take your pills, you know, and... And there were times where I took myself off the pills because, I mean, um, one specific pill, I gained 70 pounds in six weeks. I mean, it's horrible, like, what some of these pills do to you. And I just – and some of them are, like, so mind-numbing, and and I couldn't live that way. I'm, I still was like, I'm a human being, you know? And so I – we were not connected at all because he hadn't experienced it. And he always sided with the doctors and the medications, and and I needed him to side with me. Looking back, obviously, it's so hard, you know, to have what he experienced as well. It's just such a hard role to play, to play the caregiver to your own wife. Yeah, Mark, what do you... When when she was released into your care from the hospital, what did they tell you your responsibility was? Uh, basically to, like, not let her die, you know? They said, you got to keep her safe, and she has to take her medication. Because if she's not taking her medication, you can't keep her at home. She's going to have to go back in the hospital. Yeah, it was just, it was it was really tough, you know? And it's tough to hear Julia say this stuff now because I really... Um, I really, you know, when you when you're when she says stuff like "I'm the devil," then it's I can't take her literally anymore. You know, 
I just couldn't. It's not to say that I didn't trust her, but I guess I kind of didn't trust her. And so when she's saying, like, you don't know how these pills make me feel, it was really easy for me to say, you're right, I don't, but it's worth it because you're not thinking you're the devil anymore and you're not actively trying to throw yourself out of a moving car. Um, but that's because I didn't have to take those pills. And the problem is, is since she, she, this was her first time, she had no baseline understanding of how medication impacted her. And so they didn't know what meds were going to work and what meds weren't going to work. And so it was this like long drawn out science experiment of, okay, let's try these pills for three weeks. Oh, they didn't work. Okay, let's just switch them out. So Mark, this is a, a difficult question, but during that period, did you fantasize about leaving the marriage? You know, um, the, the the reality is is no, I did not, because it felt it just felt like it was too intense to leave. But after when things got normal, then you just start to bicker about who did the laundry and this little stuff, this little crap, basically. That's where I was like, what's going on here? Like, that's where I started to get more frustrated with the marriage. Where I was like, don't you realize like what I did to help you and um, what I was, how much I love you and how much I, how much I sacrificed to, to try to take care of you. And I, I got really frustrated for a while, you know, where I, I just didn't feel like it was reciprocated. Not that I was fantasizing leaving the marriage, but I think that's where the, the impact, the negative impact on our marriage really came to life. And we had to just navigate the normal things that couples confront with this very unbalanced power dynamic. It was really sloppy and we fought about it a lot. And Julia, do you, do you, it sounds like you were frustrated with Mark because you felt like you'd had this profound experience that he was totally outside of. He just couldn't understand. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, he was not in a psych ward and I will never be the same. I just, you know, this, this changed me forever, you know? And, and so I see the world differently. It's, it's like, yeah, like I'm sure the world is beautiful and everything happens for a reason. Well, you know, we're on the, you're on the other side of that spectrum. It's really tough to come to terms with that that it's you that is going to be the one suffering and questioning your life and questioning your existence. And I don't think I I thankfully met a lot of friends that experienced similar journeys that I did that I was able to grasp onto during these last five years that have really helped save me. Can you can you tell me about the decision? How did you decide to start a family with Mark? So that was like, <laughs> I've always wanted to be a mom. Actually, when before my first episode, I remember going off birth control, like literally that summer. Um, and then I got sick and everything changed. Uh, and I remember my mom visiting me in the hospital and me telling her, Mom, I'm never going to be a mom. I'm never going to get to be a mom. Mm. And she's like, what are you talking about? 
And um, I said, no, like, this is my life. This is what I'm going to be. I'm going to be in psych wards, and I'm sick, and I'm not going to be a mom. And um, I think after, um, it was after two years um, and talking, obviously, very closely with my psychiatrist, my therapist, my gynecologist, that they thought it was going to be okay for me to get off the uh, medications and try to get pregnant safely. Um, and so we just, you know, we were blessed with this beautiful baby boy. Yeah. Soon after her son Jonas was born, Julia had another manic episode. It was again triggered by work stress and not sleeping. They put me on the meds and it's already too late and I just go into my psychosis and my big thoughts of this time I wanted, I thought heaven was a place on earth and we were all, you know, just angels. Um, So yeah, that was when Jonas was only five months, five months old. Mark said he never feared for Jonas's safety when Julia was manic, but they both felt like they weren't going to have another kid. My psychiatrist has told me, like, probably that Jonas will be my last child, yes, because she wants to keep me on meds forever, and that would mean, you know, not having another child because you don't want to be on those meds um, during pregnancy, especially if the first trimester... Ta-da! Miracles do happen, and we actually have two children. Yes. Um, Jonas is now 11, and our second son, Cosimo, is five. This is part of a voice memo we received from Mark and Julia earlier this year, eight years since my first conversation with them. I'd reached out when we were working on our mental health Collins series to see how they were doing, and they said, really good. Julia had not had a manic episode since we spoke. They had a second son, and Julia said she was managing her stress. I tend to get sick from work stress, and now I work at an amazing company where we actually work out as teams during lunch break, and that has been extremely helpful, keeping me healthy and kind of maintaining my work stress. Coming up, a few weeks after Julia sent in that voice memo, she had another episode. When Julia was starting to go manic, Jonas noticed something. And so I talked to him and his description was, mom's being really nice, but it seems like she's trying too hard to be nice right now. Last week, I asked you to send in voice memos about how death, sex, and money has fit into your life as the team and I look ahead to the end of this era of making the show at WNYC. It has been really wonderful to hear from so many of you about how you first came upon the show and about what we've accompanied you through in life as you kept listening. A few years ago, I had an affair with a married man and... That relationship ended horribly in all the ways that you can imagine. 
My sister sent me an episode of Death, Sex, and Money in which people talked about their experiences with infidelity. And listening to the stories that people shared was a lifeline for me. It made me see that the people in that episode were not monsters and that maybe that also meant that I was not a monster. And I was living in upstate New York, 3,000 miles from where I grew up, supporting my, at the time, boyfriend and his family. His then 21-year-old brother had just been diagnosed with a very rare fatal cancer. So everywhere I went, I just uh, brought the whole room down and people didn't know what to say and their discomfort made me uncomfortable. So I just stopped talking about it. I felt like I had to be polite, less intense. So I kind of made jokes or I glossed over everything. And uh, this show, your show, was, was the antithesis to that polite conversation. And it just really resonated. They really were the things I was thinking about all the time and not able to talk about enough. Keep sending in your voice memos about your experiences with the show how it's made you think differently about anything in your life or how it's been a comfort or also when we've made you laugh. I definitely love the moments in our show that have helped me take a step away from my internal drama and laugh at the absurdity life sometimes throws at you. Record a voice memo and send it to us at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. And remember, as I said at the top of the show, while we are still figuring out what the future is going to look like for the show, for me, and for the rest of the team, that is not stopping us from celebrating what we've made so far. So if you can be in New York City on the afternoon of Saturday, December 9th, join us at Caveat, a cabaret on the Lower East Side, for a live event we're calling Four Interviews and a Funeral. There's a link to get tickets in our show notes. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Late in the spring of 2023, Julia Lukacs was hospitalized for 17 days. I talked with her and Mark on a video call a few months later. She was back at her job in marketing. Mark joined from an empty classroom. He's a ninth grade teacher. That day's lesson, sex ed. Literally just like hands still sticky from the... <laughs> Uh. <laughs> rubbing alcohol that I was using to wash off the lubricant of, of doing demos of putting condoms on little pieces of wood. I think you all probably had different days than I did. Unlike her other episodes, Julia had not been stressed about work. And it was springtime. The others had happened in the fall. But like the times before, Julia had started having trouble sleeping. 
I was listening to a lot of meditations like at night. I was like proactively like always had my favorite meditation. It was Harry Styles on the Calm app. Oh. <laughs> it was a it was a, it was a sleep story. <laughs> yeah, it was a sleep story by Harry Styles and he would put me to bed. And so the big thing there is once I stop sleeping, it's like go panic mode, find the antipsychotic medication and take it right away. Uh, the problem was, I think, you know, after eight and a half years, I kind of got a little bit too comfortable mm -hmm. with the maintenance and the fact that I did not have on hand an antipsychotic at the time. And then despite getting an antipsychotic prescription, Julia still wasn't sleeping. Her symptoms got worse. It was literally Mother's Day morning where we got to the threshold of like, I remember the kids came in and brought their little cards and gifts for Julia. Uh, and then they were going on a hike. And in that 30, 40 minutes that they were gone, um, Julia was having these very physical like shakes. And she had actually kind of stopped communicating verbally. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, I think we need to go and get emergency care to make sure she's not getting over-medicated. So the kids literally went on a hike on Mother's Day morning and came home and we were gone. Mm -hmm. And I didn't come back till like 10 hours later. And Julia obviously didn't come back. Mm -hmm. And Mark, I guess, is there, is there something about having, um, I don't know if you think of it this way, but eight and a half years is a long time. It, it, it suggests that you had figured out a, a med strategy and a lifestyle strategy, even through early parenting, um, like what did it what did it feel like for you to feel like number one that this could come so much out of nowhere and also that like the clock was resetting in a way mm -hmm. yeah it was it was really not <laughs> it was very unwelcome to bring this back into our lives you know i was actually really mad i was like why <laughs> why like we've been we've been doing fine um i think i projected some of that madness that anger at what I was considering, like some of the comfort that we had taken, that it was fine and we didn't have to deal with this again. I was also really mad at the timing of this. Our son, Jonas, went to this really small K through five and like their last month of fifth grade is really, really intentional and celebratory. They perform this play and they have a really big graduation ceremony. He's a baseball player. He loves baseball. So that's like peak of baseball season. So there was just like, so much happening in his life. He actually turned 11 the third day she was in the hospital. I, I was just really, um, I was just pissed off that this was so disruptive to them and their childhood. And then also to me, you know, as their father who was there wanting to support that childhood, you know? And I will say like, I'm not mad at Julia. I was just mad that this was happening. As Mark talked, I could see on the video call his anger at having to accept this isn't an illness he can fix for Julia and their family. And as Mark described this, I could also see Julia's pain. It was hard for her to hear the impact of her illness on her kids. She could hear this now, but Julia wanted me to understand that when she was in the grips of her episode, she was not capable of tracking things like baseball schedules. 
At the same time, the reason the episode felt so intense was because her illness was making her think it was up to her to protect and keep her family safe. A lot of it has to do with, like, Mark is sleeping now, and I need to protect him, so I'm going to stay up and protect him. And, like, the same thing, the kids are sleeping downstairs, like, I need to stay up and protect my family from a harm or from evil. There's always forces of evil at play, and yeah, and it, and it feels very real. It's like, it's not like, oh, it's a delusion. It's like, tell your mind it's not real. But for me, it's like, I am in the battlefield, like protecting like humanity. And this time, Julia said she didn't feel suspicious of Mark during her episode, as she had previously, thinking he was part of some plot against her. This time, she wanted and needed him close. I mean, so much so that the first two weeks, like, I wouldn't even take my medication unless Mark would give me the medication. So the, the nurse would have to call Mark, and Mark would have to come and give me, like, ice cream and, like, my pills. What do you think that shift's about? I think we all evolve and, and grow from these experiences, and I think we've changed a lot. We know a lot what a hospitalization entails, and I think there's more compassion that we have towards each other, even even while I'm psychotic. Like, I feel like I still have that in check. Hmm. Did you feel that, Mark? Oh, unquestionably, yeah. Is it difficult when you're coming out of the hospital and... I don't, I don't know if they have this assumption, but I imagine sometimes when you go to the hospital and then you come back from the hospital, you, the hospital ought to have fixed you. Like, how, how did you talk about the, the re-entry? How did you explain to the that kids? to them? Mm-hmm. Um, Mark, do you want to answer? Yeah, I, th- I think the truth is, is that I mostly did the talking to that. Uh-huh. I think that Julia came home in a very fragile, vulnerable state and... We were really glad to have her home. And we also recognized, um, they think the kids saw it pretty clearly, like, okay, mom is not 100%. And so I would just say, you know, we got to be gentle. Jonas understands the language of highs and lows because of bipolar. And so we've been able to shift like mom's now in a low state, you know? Mm. And then I think Julia was also pretty good at, at setting her parameters when things were overwhelming. I think this is something that I did really differently. Is that in the past, if something was overwhelming for Julia, I wasn't very good at giving her the permission to step away because I assumed that like we could collectively love her to recovery, you know? Yeah. But I, I now it's like there was a lot of, okay, mom would eat dinner and then she would just go lay in bed and we would give her the space and close the door and not bother her or go sit outside for a while and like not drawing attention to it, just letting Julia have that space. I I have kind of a big, big question and that I was sort of thinking about um, because you've, you, I feel like this episode was confirmation for you all that yes, in fact, Julia has a chronic illness that you don't know when it will f- flare up um, and um, you can only do what you can do 
based on what's happening in the moment. And and I'm I'm wondering, like, have you, Julia, found that, like, kind of uh, allowing in the fact that you're not always going to be able to, to control your mental health, even if you have the best meds and the best psychiatrist, you're not always going to be able to control what happens. Like, do you do you feel like that awareness has, like, does that does that ability to sit with that lack of control, has that shown up in other parts of your life, whether in parenting or if you've had grief around something else or, you know, things happening with work that you can't control? Does it feel like it's been a useful exercise? Yeah. So what I will say is for me to make sense and meaning in this world, after having seen and experienced what I've experienced, mm-hmm. requires me to live through basically every day as if it's my my last day. Like this is my last day. Like this is the day that we're living for. This is the moment that we're living for. I am no longer planning six months, a year, five years down the line. I cannot. Like mm-hmm. knowing that m- my episodes can come at any moment, like that's like high anxiety for mm-hmm. me. And so I literally live in the moment now. I only live in today. The second thing I have to do every day is gratitude and having a moment of like real grace every day and uh, and basically an appreciation of being alive because I feel like I have faced death many times. I have been to, you know, war with myself and with my mind. So having that moment of grace is very important on a Mm -hmm. daily basis. So so that's what I've had to do post-episode. That's Julia and Mark Lukacs. Julia says she now has the right antipsychotic medication on hand if her sleep routine fails her. And that routine still includes Harry Styles. If you or someone you love is struggling with a mental health crisis or the risk of suicide, start finding help by calling 988, the National Mental Health Crisis Line in the U.S. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. This episode was produced by Zoe Azule with help from Afi Yellow Duke. The rest of the team is Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz, Lindsay Foster Thomas, and Andrew Dunn. Our intern is Ellie McKay. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. The show is on Instagram at Death, Sex, Money, and I'm there at Anna Sale Picks. That's P-I-C-S. And subscribe to our weekly newsletter if you haven't already. I write a weekly essay there. And as we told you, our show is in transition here at WNYC. And we are sharing updates about the future of the show there, along with other things the team and I are thinking about. Sign up to get that newsletter every week at deathsexmoney.org slash newsletter. Thank you to Alicia Baylog in Chicago, Illinois, for being a member of Death, Sex, and Money and supporting us with a monthly donation. We could not do this without you, Alicia, and all of our sustaining members. Thank you. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. Something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, 
Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.